The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. What is it about French women that make everything seem effortless? I love going to France and seeing chic women walking around in simple jeans or black pants and flat boots or tennis shoes, a little bit of jewelry, a little dab of makeup, and of course, an amazing scarf. And they always make it look effortless. Now, every time I try that, it doesn't look as effortless, but I always admire it. Everybody's trim and everybody eats, as we know, the French paradox, wonderful food and drink, but always manages to stay slim. I would love to be French every day of my life. David would love to be Italian every day of his life. And we would be happily live in France and Italy if we could every days of our lives. So this isn't just about fashion. It's also about food. What is it about the French that make food so beautiful and seemingly effortless to make, even though sometimes the dishes can seem and appear rococo and lavish, but not always? Because really, really great French food is simply prepared with great ingredients and an amazing flair. And a great example is our topic today and my guest. Alexandra Crapanzano is a James Beard award-winning writer and dessert columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Love the Wall Street Journal. It's one of the few papers I still subscribe to. Uh, She's written many books, uh, including the London cookbook, Eat Cook LA, and has been a frequent contributor to many uh, of the magazines that we all know and love. She's also a film producer. She's working on an interesting film on climate change in Bordeaux. I can't wait to learn more about it. She has an amazing background. Alexander grew up in New York and Paris and lived in London. She received her Bachelor of Arts from Harvard and her Master of Fine Arts from NYU, where she's taught writing. Uh, she lives in Brooklyn, is married to a filmmaker, is uh, the mother of two sons, and just an amazingly talented writer. The book that she has most recently published is called Gâteau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes by Scribner. This book has actually lured me back into wanting to cook again after two years not having a home kitchen. I was amazed at how simple the recipes are. Uh, Usually I'm intimidated by recipes, particularly when they have lots of ingredients and use lots of different heavy machinery, which I don't seem to be very adept at anymore. But these recipes are so approachable and everything looks so good that this is a book I would give to friends as gifts and I'm gifting to myself to keep. And that's impressive because we have a very limited library I'm allowed to have of cookbooks these days. It is my pleasure to have Alexander join us on the show from Brooklyn, New York, where I am today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be on. Well, you're getting some great reviews for Gateau. Congratulations. I I was reading some of them. I loved um, Susan Puckett's review in the uh, Atlanta Journal, uh, one of my favorites. And she alludes to the simplicity of the chic French women and and compares it to 
making uh, rolling a genoise, for example, and a simple pound cake. And I, I, it made me, it made me, made my mouth water just reading the review, much less the books. Um, but I like to first start with my guests' background because this is a show about storytelling and sharing stories. You have an interesting one. You grew up, okay, you kind of have a background I wish I'd had. You grew up in New York, London, and Paris. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, okay? <laughs> so, and and desired to live in New York, London, and Paris. So give me a little bit a uh, story about your family and your childhood. Oh, I, I was in fact really, really lucky. Um, so uh, my mother uh, was for, oh my goodness, 50 years. I mean, she... She's now, uh, you know, writing, but not not as a foreign correspondent. But uh, she was she was the European correspondent for the New Yorker magazine, Jane Kramer, and uh, so she was she was really discovered when she was at Columbia in her master's program by the editor of the New Yorker, and she very quickly took on this role of writing the letter from Europe. And when I was a a young child, she would move back and she would have to kind of travel back and forth between France and New York or London and New York or or Rome and New York, wherever it was. And it sounds fantastic and it was fantastic, but it was also, I think, pretty grueling. And I think at a certain point, she really wanted to to do a deeper dive and, and write uh, more consistently. Uh, and I, my father is a professor of comparative literature and, and anthropology. And, um, and when I was also young, he was uh, very involved with Derrida and the, uh, the kind of literary theory movement going on in France. And so for, for those two reasons, practically, they wanted to move to France. And then, of course, you know, who doesn't want to move to France? <laughs> so, so essentially they had, you know, my father had a sabbatical that was supposed to be one year and ended up being much longer. And, uh, and my mother had, you know, a absolutely great professional reason to be in France. And so when I was 10, we actually moved and I had been spending summers there before, but I had not actually really lived there and gone to school there. And I it felt just madly in love with actually living in Paris. There was something about just daily existence there that just was was pleasurable. And as a young child too, or I wasn't, I guess 10 is not that young, but I was able to have all of this incredible independence, which I could not have in New York um, right. because Paris is much safer. And I had a great big dog who was 125 pounds from Normandy. And we used to take great walks in the city. And one of the things we would do, of course, was, you know, stop at every patisserie, every boulangerie, every fromagerie. I mean, it was, it was you know, you can bring your dog everywhere in Paris. So um, so I was really introduced to food and I got to know not just incredible restaurants. The dollar was very, very strong at that time. But I also um, got to know the people who who really worked in these great food shops and um, and would talk about their ingredients and how to make things. And I just, I, I, I learned so, so, so much during that time. And they stayed, they stayed there for off and on for 16 years. My father yeah. came to teach, but, but um, kind of commuted. And so it really was, uh, it was a home uh, well into my, my uh, mid twenties. What an amazing experience. Um, I'm so, I, I rarely say I'm envious, but I am. I, I did grow up in a literary family. Both my parents are writers as well and authors. And um, 
that inspired me to write. I was writing at an early age. Did you, were you a diarist? I mean, were you keeping diaries as a little girl and aspiring to be a writer or did you have other dreams? Oh, the exact opposite. You know, <laughs> you have two parents who write. Uh, I think there's a moment as a, where you think, okay, writing is the last thing on earth I want to do. I mean, I still remember, you know, my mother on a deadline and, uh, and I would just hear the typewriter going, I mean, these are in the days of typewriters, right. And, um, and it just seemed like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know how exciting it was. And, uh, but I also know that when you write, you really don't take any vacations. There's never kind of hi, honey, I'm home moment. Cause you're always home. <laughs> so I, yeah. so I thought this is not what I want to do, but, but of course, of course I ended up doing it. And I now really love to write. I was not a diarist, but I did. I did take a huge number of photographs and that in some way was my diary. So I have, I have food photographs that date back from when I was a, a kid. So if you add photography as well as film and writing to your repertoire, I'm very, very impressed. Um, you actually enter a master's of fine arts uh, program in film. I've always wanted to go back and get a master's of fine arts. I've dibbled with it, but I'm, I'm probably not at my age, but I, I'm impressed by that because I think if I did my life over, I would go back and get a master's in something when I was younger. Did you, uh, and you've worked with some really interesting film, even though we're going to be talking about your, your book. Uh, I I'm fascinated by your film career. You've worked with some pretty major people like Martin Scorsese. Talk to me about some of the films you've produced. Well, I, so I, I loved going to film school actually. And, and I've always just had, a, had an incredible passion for film. Uh, but when I, you know, when I finished college, I ended up working for David Mamet and Mike Nichols. So yes, yeah, so some some major people. And then I actually- Oh, that's it. Not Scorsese, Nichols yeah. and Mamet. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Scorsese was one of the teachers at NYU, you know, oh, teacher. Okay. So, but it, but I absolutely, um, you know, I've always, I've always felt that storytelling is just, is, can be multidimensional. And, um, and I wanted to, I really wanted to learn about the combination of, of sound and image and, and storytelling and arc. And I think it, I think it has had an enormous impact on my writing. And then I went to graduate film school and my money job doing that was producing for Martha Stewart's, uh, you know, CBS show. And, uh, and that was, that was great. And uh, she's so meticulous. I can only imagine what it was like working with her because she's very Oh, I learned, I learned so much from her. She is really meticulous, but mm -hmm. I, I kind of really respected that. You know, she really right. knows her stuff. And, uh, and it was, it was just a, a fantastic opportunity. And, and then I, you know, then I wrote, but I, I did a lot of, I did a lot more film work in the UK than I actually did in the US. Mm -hmm. And when my son was born, there happened to be a writer's guild strike. So WGA, and you, and you really cannot write a screenplay in America or even, you know, as an American for uh, Britain, um, if you're a guild member and the guild's on strike. So I suddenly had to stop. And I do believe that writing is a muscle. And, um, and I've always had, you know, I've always had just incredible passion for food. I've always cooked. I've always kept recipes. I've always, you know, my favorite thing to do at, uh, at Martha Stewart and also the Atlantic where I worked was to go into the food library and just, you know, read all of the books. And, uh, and so during the strike, I had this little baby and there was a strike and I knew I wanted to keep writing and I had an idea of something and I, uh, I sent in a note to Amanda Hesser, who was then the food editor of the New York Times magazine. Mm -hmm. And she said, give it a try. And I did. And that led to, you know, two years of, of doing the New York Times magazine food column kind of 
every other week or every two weeks, uh, three weeks. And, um, and suddenly I really, you know, it's, it's like I landed in, in paradise. I mean, I, I found that it was something I hate to say that I was always meant to do because that sounds incredibly arrogant, but it, it felt, it felt really good. And, uh, and I, so I did that. And then, um, Ruth Reichel read something and called me up and, and said, I want you to do some pieces for gourmet. And I was incredibly lucky to work with her because she really does believe in writers. And she kind of, she let me kind of move into a more personal narrative arc in, in what I was doing. And I won a James Beard award for, for work I had done at gourmet. And, uh, and then, I mean, I'm giving you the long version, but then, you know, the Wall Street Journal decided, you know, just over 12 years ago that they would start a lifestyle section on the weekends. And, um, and when Gourmet shuttered, uh, I was devastated. And uh, soon thereafter, I got a call from the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, and then, of course, you know, once you, it's hard not to write books, but, uh, but I'm pretty particular about what I, what I take on in that. And, um and of course, having lived all over, what I really love writing about are the places that I love. And, you know, although I live in New York now, um, I have not written a book about New York, which is not to say I don't love it, but I actually really love the research process of, of kind of diving deep into a subject that I'm either, you know, familiar with um, or want to be familiar with. Well, you've had some wonderful mentors. Ruth has been a guest on The Connected Table and is such a talented writer. And so has Amanda Hesser. And I have the greatest respect with what she's done with Food 52. I remember when she first started at the New York Times and she asked to meet with me um, when I was running the James Beard Awards. And she said, I was told, she said, I was told I should meet you. And I was like, it's so nice to meet you. And I, I just admire where she's taken Food 52. So you've worked with some wonderful people. I actually maintain my subscription to the Wall Street Journal, not because I am watching the stocks and bonds market, but because I love the lifestyle section. <laughs> I think it is just one of the best ever. And, and it is a joy to get that still print copy on the weekend. Um, I, I do love it too. I really do. And I, th I think it just, it gives, it, you know, it gives a little vibrancy to the newspaper, which is necessary too. It is. It is. I mean, I grew up, my first writing gig was for the Chattanooga Free Press newspaper. And it was always my dream to work for newspapers. And this sad state of journalism now is, it, it's just sad. You're so fortunate to have uh, your column uh, in, in the Wall Street Journal in a time when everything seems to be diminished. Hold on to it. No kidding. No, of course. Um, I mean, I will say this just in terms of advertising, if, if you, if you are trying to advertise something wonderful and you have the choice between, you know, putting an ad next to a chocolate cake or next to, you know, devastating world news, mm -hmm. chances are you want to put it next to that chocolate cake. <laughs> so I, so I, I couldn't feel, agree more because there's just so too much I, devastating world ex news. Exactly. So I, I think, uh, I, I think, you know, I think the section has, uh, you know, has a has a good position. It, it I can say it, it brings me joy because I really have shut off a lot of news lately um, because of all the negativity and just to open that paper. And I still love the feel and the smell of newsprint. I'll always be that person. I love the smell of a library book and a heart. People send me digital books. I love opening a real book and thumbing through the pages. And a perfect example is your latest book, Gateau, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes 
when I get a book for consideration for a guest for my shows or for writing and reviewing, I really sit down and thumb through every page. I look at everything. I'm the one that rips pieces of paper and puts it here and there. And I did that on many pages of Gateau. Oh, that's the greatest compliment. That's entirely how I how I judge books too. I mean, I love, I love, as you know, I love cookbooks. And I also like you, I always request actual books as opposed to mm-hmm. digital books. And um, and I do exactly what you do. I take a little bit because I don't want to earmark the pages. I want to keep them right. nice. So, I yes. don't want to bend the pages or mark unless it's a unless it's a workbook where I'm studying, um, yeah. like I am with my wine book right now. That's a different thing, but I always I, I have so many pieces of ripped paper. And so these are a few things that um, I found interesting and surprising. The, the word simplicity captured me because I kind of glazed over it when I saw the title because you, I get a lot of I get a lot of books with simple in the title. But as I digested the recipes on the page, I was like, wow, this seems really simple. I could even make it. The recipes are really simple. And, you know, one of the things I love about the French um, is, is that they leave certain things to the pros, right? If you're, right. if you're, a, um, you know, not a chef, not a patisserie, and you want an extremely elaborate cake, or you want a great confection, you go and you buy it at the patisserie where, you know, the patisserie, patissier has, has trained since he was, or she was, you know, 13 or 14 years old and done long apprenticeships and gone to culinary school and, you know, maybe worked, you know, somewhere outside of Paris and then eventually was able to open their shop. So, so there really is, I think Francis, you know, with the appreciation of food as an art form comes this idea that, you know, you can can't do everything. And, and so what, you know, what at least my Parisian friends and my French friends have always done at home is to cook really simply, but really well. And usually with kind of beloved classics that they know their, you know, their back pocket recipes. And, and then they just, with that confidence of having done it, they're able to riff on it and play with it according to what's in season or what's in the cabinet or, you know, what they're, what they're having for dinner. And so that, you know, it goes back to, to what you were talking about with scarves. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it is that sense of, you know, if I have five great scarves, I can turn almost any outfit into something fantastic. I think the same thing is very much true with baking, which is if I have an arsenal of recipes, I really, really know um, that are foolproof, you know, some of these recipes have been around for hundreds of years. They've really stood the test of time. Um, then I have the confidence, you know, to have people over and have a glass of wine with them and not be fussing in the kitchen and, and know that what I'm doing is going to be excellent. And that I can also add whatever it is that I want to add to, to kind of take it to another dimension. And, and as you know, so well, there's, you know, they use the French use a lot of, a lot of booze. They use a lot of Mm -hmm. liquor and spirits and and even wine in their in their baking, and so a very simple recipe might be elevated by you know a little brushing of cognac at the end, or you know a little uh, creme de cassis, you know, tossed with some berries and, and put on the top of a very simple yogurt cake. So it really it really is about 
you know, knowing, knowing a, an arsenal of recipes really, really well that you can make almost on muscle memory at a certain point and then being able to play. And I, I wanted to capture that. And I wanted also to debunk the myth that the French are, you know, born with these culinary superpowers and kind of know how to make all of these incredible, incredible elaborate patisserie when in fact, you know, they actually are really practical, sometimes very frugal. And um, and believe in the simplicity of of food that is well done, and that's what they've learned to do. And generally, is what they make at home. Well, you know, I'm as you're speaking, I'm thinking spirits are like the scarves of food. Um, yes, because <laughs> they're, they're the ultimate accessory, and and you can change your scarf or your wine or your spirit or your cordial to go with whatever you're eating or baking. So it's a really great comparison. Is there a tradition? You know, I the, the first um, chapters are dedicated to uh, you know, the the classic yogurt cake, which I understand is is you know you have as a child, and 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 pound cakes and honey cakes. Is there a? And then you get into uh, somewhat more elaborate down the road, like daquas, which I'm going to have you explain for those who may not know the differences <laughs> between those. But um, is there a tradition of giving and baking cakes for occasions or house gifts? I know that um, I once read a book or I think I interviewed Marie Giuliani a long time ago and you always gave flowers. Uh, you brought flowers to the house. There were certain things you didn't bring when you mm -hmm. went to a house or you do. Is there a tradition with cakes? Good question. Pante piece, which is, you know, is a spice cake, uh, is almost always given around December. And, and it's a great, it is a great cake. It's, you know, it's, it's a very heavily spiced it, you know, it's, I think it's kind of in the same family, let's say as a, as a British gingerbread uh, in taste, but in fact, it's, it's a much, um, I don't want to say it's, it's a little drier and you kind of hold on to it for a long time to really let those flavors bloom. And, uh, and it's fantastic toasted. Uh, so I definitely, there, there is that real tradition uh, for that particular cake. I actually like a slightly less dry cake. And so I actually, I'm really, really proud of this recipe. I, I made a kind of um, a much more tender uh Pente piece, but with the same spices that I love. And that is a traditional gift. I don't think that the French really bring people cakes in the same way. I think that you're right. It is flowers. And, um, and I think that's kind of a, a desire not to overstep, or maybe it's an assumption that their host is already cooking something, is already baking something. It's interesting because in the South, you always bring a cake. Mm -hmm. or cookies, even if somebody's already made the food, it's always food. I mean, everything changes around the country, but in the South, you always go and bring food. And I tend to go the French way and bring flowers. You know, I, I agree. I think unless, unless you actually talk to somebody in advance and, and say, you know, would you like me to bring dessert? I feel it's a little, can be a little much. Um, and I do, I love, no, I agree with you. I love bringing flowers. You know, in America, I bring cake all the time. But part of that is because everybody knows I make cake. So, well, so. we all want you to bring cake if you're coming <laughs> so to our house. No, I do. I, I am the person. I am the cake breaker and baker and, and, and bringer at almost all, all dinners these days, uh, which is really fun because I love doing that. And cakes have such a, you know, they're so simple. It's the secret of cakes is that they actually tend to be really simple to make. And and the wow factor is is always huge. And I think people, you know, people light, they just light up when 
they have a cake. There's something, I mean, I think it triggers memories of birthday cakes and, you know, at least in France, definitely the bouche de Noël, the Christmas cake. And, um, and it makes everything feel celebratory. Uh, so for very, very little effort, I think, um, I think the rewards are just many. Um, now you and- write in the book, you write that you, when you started writing the book, you, 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 you did reach out to Dory Greenspan. I thought this was interesting to make sure she was comfortable with you writing a book, which I thought was interesting. I wouldn't say it was, you know, I, I revere Dory. I think she yeah, She's amazing. Extraordinary. I love everything about her. I love her style. I love her energy. I love her charm. I love her recipes. I just feel like she is, uh, she is just, you know, the very best. And, um, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't so much that I just felt, you know what, I'm, this is, this is her territory. And, but it's also deeply personal to me. And, and this is a book that really goes back to, um, to the foods that I've eaten since I was, you know, 10 years old um, and very, very personal. But I did, I did want her blessing. I think <laughs> I did want her blessing. I really did. And she was unbelievable in giving it and has been an enormous supporter of this book. Oh my gosh. I mean, she's been so generous and fantastic. And, um, and I do, I have a little ode to her and, uh, and a, a recipe that she worked on with Pierre Hermé with, with uh, rose water. And that's just heavenly. What's the name of the recipe? Um, I think it is. I'm not even sure. It's, it, it is, it's a cake with rose water and, and strawberries. I'll have to, uh, and, sounds and delicious. It's, yeah, it's delicious. And it's a wonder, it's a wonderfully easy recipe. Uh, and, uh, and really goes back to, to, you know, Pierre Hermé, the, the great French pastry chef, right. you know, started, I think it was around even 25 years ago, he started making these fantastic uh, macarons, which he infused with rose and raspberry and mm-hmm. lychee. And that combination just really, really took over Paris. I mean, it became an absolute craze. And uh, and I I don't use the lychee, but I do love that combination of, of, uh, of rose and raspberries. I also like rose and strawberries. I love rose water and I love orange blossom water. And- I do too. I spray it on my face. Yeah. And you can, I spray it on my cake. You know, I think there's something wonderful too, about, uh, using, using these things after something is already baked. So for example, with the Madeleine, which, you know, are, are so fantastic right out of the oven mm-hmm. and have their own real fragrance of, of uh, butter, which is one of my favorite fragrances. Uh, you know, if you spritz a little bit of something like an orange blossom water, onto them right after they're baked, then you really get that incredible fragrance and you get that, um, you, you really, you sense the perfume as well as the taste in a way that you don't always with baking. So that's, that is, that's something I learned to do there that I love is this idea of taking a little something after something is baked right before serving it and adding that last note of flavor, almost the way that, you know, if you're baking, say, or cooking savory food, you add a little bit of salt and a little bit of pepper at the very last step, or in Italy, maybe it's a drizzle of olive oil. And, um, and I think in France, it can also very much be something that involves fragrance or liqueur. That's interesting. Um, just the spritz. So everybody gets spray bottles. Um, spritzing your cake or your food. You know, I'm going to spritz more now that you mentioned that. And spritz, you know, I'm the person that, you know, when she puts her 
gets the dishes out of the dishwasher, she puts her face in there to get a steam bath. So I tend to spritz my face and spritz the food. I always try to make everything a, a beauty project. It drives David nuts, no, I um, particularly with egg whites under my eyes. But um, <laughs> but I do keep rose water. I do definitely in the fridge and I spritz my face all the time, especially when you're cooking over a hot stove. It's like, it's just yeah. a fantastic thing to do. So I was still fascinated by the yogurt cakes. Mm-hmm. Yout, they call it yout. And so those, I read somewhere that that was something very popular with children as a child. Talk to us about the um, tradition of yogurt cakes, because I love yogurt and I love cake, but I've never put yogurt in my cake. Oh, it's great. And I think, you know, I think this is, you know, for the French yogurt cake is kind of what Toll House cookies are to America, right? Oh. They're, they're that thing that you learn as a kid and it becomes a, an absolutely beloved thing that you make for the rest of your life. And, uh, and the yogurt cake is just, I made one the other night for my parents actually. And it's just, it takes literally less than 10 minutes and it's so good. And then you can do whatever you want to it, but it is, you know, the French, uh, and they still do this, although sometimes now they're plastic, but traditionally, uh, French yogurt came in little jars and those jars were about half a cup and sometimes they were ceramic and sometimes they were glass. Um, but in, in maternelle, which is nursery school, kind of kindergarten, more kindergarten than nursery by age, but you, um, you learn to make a yogurt cake and all you need is, you know, the yogurt in its jar and flour and sugar and eggs and you take a, and you have a bowl and you have a whisk and you don't need any measuring cups because you you basically you use the jar you pour the yogurt into the jar and then you use that yogurt jar to measure the flour and the sugar and the eggs and um and you don't even need baking powder now i use baking powder most people do but the eggs traditionally would would create enough levity and you can just whisk and um and then you just pour it into a pan and and you bake it and it's it could not be simpler it can be in a loaf pan it can be an eight inch round uh it can even be in a nine inch round it can be in a square tin it can be dressed up for dinner with a, a little soaking syrup or a pretty glaze. It can have fruit. It can have a little, you know, you can put chocolate chips in it and, and pour a ganache over it, which a friend of mine did for her birthday recently. Uh, you can split it in half and add some jam to the middle. I mean, it is so endlessly adaptable. You can add nuts, you can add fruit. A lot of people right now would be adding, you know, maybe apples tossed in a little bit of cinnamon, or maybe some pears uh, or the, the last of the stone fruit. So it's incredibly adaptable. And what I, what ends up happening is, you know, you, you do the basic as a kid and then, you know, I have friends in their forties who will serve it for dinner with a little bit of say Grand Marnier. Um, oh, yeah. That's, and, you know, I was amazed at how many uh, renditions you had in Gateau and it made me think and, and how simple this recipe is. It's the first one I'm going to work on when I get back to my kitchen uh, because we have a lot of booze downstairs. David writes about spirits. So we have a, <clears throat> an endless cabinet of things yeah, to use up. Me and, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I want to find interesting ways to use it all up. Um, I, I love that recipe. I was really happy to see Madeleine's because there's nothing like, for me, the French Madeleine is like the Southern biscuit. It's just got to be a certain, it has to be warm and it has to be made a certain way with a certain smell and texture. Yes. And, I, and, and also macarons, the same thing, because I've had good biscuits, Madeleine's and macarons and bad biscuits, Madeleine's Iraq. And I'm very particular. And so I was so excited to see a, a recipe to try because it really is a, a wonderful thing. You know, and Madeleines are so easy and they're great for serving at dinner parties or when, you know, even, you know, en famille, but 
basically you just, you make the batter and, and the batter needs to sit in the fridge at least six hours. And it can certainly sit in the fridge overnight. In fact, it's generally better. And you can, you can put that batter right. You can literally put the batter right into the Madeleine pan. So you're ready to go. And then, you know, at the start of dinner, you preheat the oven and, you know, 10 minutes before dessert, you pop them into the oven and, and then they come out and everybody is, I mean, it's just people absolutely light up and of course they're best eaten right away. So you kind of, you, you want to, you want to eat them five minutes out of the oven. Yeah. There's nothing like a old Madeline and that's when you you kind of mash them up and turn them into something else. But there's a recipe I really want you to make in this book because it's an, it's an unusual recipe and it's a red wine, chocolate cake and red wine and chocolate are not an obvious combination as we know. And, um, but in this case, the wine is reduced into a into a sugar syrup essentially, and um, and added to when you when you beat the eggs, and it's absolutely the most delicious cake. It is it is light and richly chocolatey, and and you get a kind of haunting of the wine in the background. It's not overpowering. Is there a specific type of red wine you would use? Maybe more fruit forward versus tannic. You know, I would. I. Absolutely. I mean, this is the moment even for a Zinfandel, you know, it's, it's like, um, but I think, I think you can also, you know, the French tend to be, you know, whatever, whatever they might've had left over from the night before can sometimes work too. Yeah. Um, If you don't want to make a red wine vinaigrette down the road, you can put it in your cake and it, and it's a really great way to um, get rid of all those samples of wine that you really didn't like that are just too fruit bomby. It's a great way to use them in the cake. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) My you you said it, but it's a, it is a, it's a brilliant recipe. And I, I absolutely, I love that. And people are always surprised. They say, you know, I didn't think red wine and chocolate went together and no, you wouldn't. They do in cake. (laughs) because of the, because of the process. And, um, you know, there's a lot of cognac in this book. There's a lot of Armagnac, uh, definitely Mm -hmm. there are some really great recipes with, with prunes soaked in Armagnac, say in the the best, which is a a great, another great boozy dish, uh, from Brittany, which I love. And I um, love prunes and Armagnac and we've got a lot of Armagnac and we could use more prunes in our house. So I'm going to, that's another great recipe. Um, that is fairly simple and delicious. Really, really delicious. I mean, very, very silky, that one. Absolutely love that. And, you know, and then there's a lot of rum because the French really do use rum almost the way that we use vanilla. You know, Mm -hmm. French pantry, we usually have a bottle of rum in it. And I don't think the French reach for vanilla in quite the same way that we do. So, so they will often turn to rum for that, that extra note. And, um, and even when they, you know, or making a cake that has, that is, has rum that's more forward. So a gâteau uh, de nolte, which is a wonderful uh, recipe from, from nolte, which, which actually does have a rum soaking syrup. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it tends to be used in balance so that it's, it's more about nuance than it is about that kind of drenched cake. Well, I love a good baba rum. And yep. I'm, I'm a believer too. I'm not a big fan of the flavor of vanilla. Like I can't mm-hmm. stand vanilla ice cream unless right. it has like butter pecan nuts in it. But I love rum, which has many wonderful dark rums have vanilla notes among other layers of flavors. Yes. So I can envision that and taste it as you talk and putting it in a cake. And I'm a baba rum is, is really one of my favorite desserts. I, I seem to have a lot of baba rum when I was in Italy recently. They seem oh, to really love it in Southern Italy. Well, I actually yeah. make them with limoncello, which is kind of interesting. And I don't like, oh. I don't like drinking lim- limoncello unless it's 
really good because it tends to be too sweet and um, right. but it's fantastic if you you know it's fantastic in baking because you get that that real lemony flavor but I had fun with the baba rum and I you know and I like also now um kind of infusing the rum simple syrup with various spices and and other things to just give it a little bit more dimension um but it's so much fun and and the trick I learned uh was that, you know, so many French people will actually take, you know, a big Staub or Le Creuset pot and they will just put the Barbara rum in it with the rum and just, you know, twirl the, twirl the Barbara rum around <laughs> in the syrup. Uh, and, and it's, that it's sounds good. Yeah, it's great. It's so much better than, you know, than actually kind of pouring it on and standing there, you know, drizzling and drizzling and drizzling. One of my favorite and funny dining memories is when Alain Ducasse opened at the, uh, Essex House. I don't know what it is now. And it was a very frou-frou restaurant. He got a lot of flack for being a little over the top. But I remember they brought out the baba rum and then they brought out the rum cart and you Mm -hmm. can pick your rum. And I was Mm -hmm. like, Ooh, I can pick my rum. I picked one from Guyana. I just remember it was like such a fun detail to pick your rum. I pick your poison. It was great. Yeah, it was great. So I have a question for you for people. So what is the difference between a genoise and dequoise? Oh, totally different. So a genoise is a sponge cake and, um, and it is, you know, I think people are intimidated by it because so often it's made and it turns out dry and they think, oh my gosh, you know, this is terrible, but it is meant to be dry. It's never meant to be eaten alone. It is meant as a sponge to absorb the flavors of whatever you put on top of it. So it definitely, it's, you, you need a soaking syrup on top of it, which is speaking of rum, you know, oftentimes Mm -hmm. it's making simple syrup, uh, you know, uh, a ratio of two to one. So say two cups of sugar, one cup of water, obviously you're not going to use all of that, uh, bring it to a simmer, thicken a little, little bit, take it off heat. And then you want a, a one-to-one ratio with rum. So, you know, a quarter cup of the simple syrup and a quarter cup of rum, and you can brush that right onto the genoise and you suddenly have something pretty extraordinary. And you can do that with all manner. You can also switch out the the sugar for for honey, you can even do maple syrup if you want, just kind of all the rage in Paris right now. And um, and what's what I love about Chanois is, you know, in a patisserie, they're what's used in those fantastic layers where you might have five thin or 10 thin layers uh, filled with buttercream and mousse and, and, you know, incredibly intricate. But at home, what you do is you, you, you just, you make a genoise, you cut it into two layers, you brush on that soaking syrup, maybe you fill it with chantilly, maybe you fill it with a little ganache, maybe you add some jam, maybe you add some fruit, you add the other layer, you do the same thing on top, and suddenly you have a really fantastic layer cake. And and again, really practical, because the genoise can be made the night before, you leave it at room temperature. Um, As I said, it's meant to be on the dry side, and obviously it isn't dry by the time you eat it with the soaking syrup and the filling. Um, but again, super, super practical. I mean, a lot of these recipes are actually make ahead recipes and, um, That's and good. yeah. And um, particularly the nut torts, which are also gluten-free because, mm-hmm. you know, that's so much natural fat that you can really make those the night before, set them on the counter at room temperature. And they're almost even better. What's well, nice that you have gluten-free recipes in, in gateau as well. Um, yeah. for those who cannot tolerate gluten, um, seems like and, the world. But. And the dakwas is one of them, right? So the dakwas is actually, you know, layer, it's it's discs of, you know, it could be a square, mm-hmm. but I make it in round discs of meringue that are, you know, that you, you kind of sandwich with 
whatever you want. Again, it could be a Chantilly that's spiked, you know, you could do, um, it could be again, a chocolate, a chocolate mousse. It could be a hazelnut mousse. It could be, which I love to do around Christmas time. It could be, um, you know, chestnut puree that's, that's whipped into um, a Chantilly. And, um, and then, and also with a little Armagnac, that is fantastic. And then you can add some candied chestnuts to the top. So it's incredibly adaptable. It is also, of course, gluten-free because it's, it's, you know, it, unless you make a nut version, it's made with egg whites. And um, one of those desserts that couldn't be simpler and looks completely spectacular. Well, my all-time favorite is pavlova. Yeah. So this is, this is like a stacked pavlova. And, right. and what I always tell to people is if they're worried about it, you know, all you have to do is, you know, basically mash it up and turn it into a, a British Eden mess. And, and you're fine. I also love eating mess. I mean, I, I, I love that dish as well, but um, our traditional holiday, well, it's the traditional Melanie's home dessert yeah. is my mother's version of a pavlova. They call it meringue back in the South. Okay. I think that is just the I mean, I also love Il Flotant. I love that dessert. And I can't pass a patisserie in Paris without getting a meringue. Oh, Just, and you, you do have a recipe for pavlova in Gato. I was very happy to see that. Another another uh, recipe where you can add different wonderful fruits and also a little spirit to it, if um, which is wonderful. And, and um, one of my all-time favorites. I'm glad. So, I can't yeah. wait to make that a quote. And then finally, the last one I actually love is, and it almost sounds dirty to say it, but I just love clafouti. I love clafouti, but why don't you explain to anyone who may not know what it is, what it is? Oh, clafouti is, is great. It is a little bit like, you know, what we call a Dutch bunny pancake. It's mm-hmm. a little bit like a souffle. It's a little bit like a custard. It's hard to describe, but it is, um, you know, it is it is almost like a baked custard and it's fantastic. And if it's done well, it is, you know, it's, it's moist. It's a little slippery in a very sensual way. Um, Mm -hmm. Definitely great hot. And, you know, it can be terrible. I mean, the, the clafouti that was served in my school in Paris was, was just awful and turned me away from clafouti for years. And then I had a, a, a really great clafouti. And I thought, oh my God, this is a, this is an entirely different thing, but yeah. you can, you can add, you know, you can add raspberries, you can add, um, you know, sauteed pears or sauteed apples or, or peaches. Um, you can add cocoa and make a chocolate clafouti. It is, tra- it is traditionally made with cherries mm-hmm. and it can also be made with brandy cherries. So again, super, super adaptable, um, very easy to put together, baked in a hot oven, served hot and, um, and, and very deeply comforting, but not bland comforting. I would say that, you know, that kind of French comfort food is st- perhaps stronger in flavor than we think of comfort food food maybe, but still has that incredible um, kind of warm, nostalgia inducing texture. Yeah. You know, I, all these desserts, all these cakes, and you also have kudos, some savory cakes, which I am, I'm a big believer that, you know, everything doesn't have to always be sweet. So thank you for including um, a selection of savory cakes as well. Absolutely. You know, these are my favorite um, for lunch boxes, tote bags, picnics, even to take on planes and also right. for a, to have before dinner with an aperitif because they, they are, 
you know, they're kind of everything we love in a sandwich thrown into the batter. It's kind of like a quick bread, obviously no sugar. Um, one of my favorites is actually a riff on an Italian caprese salad. So it has uh, cherry tomatoes in it and basil and mozzarella and olive oil. And it is just the, the most heavenly cake and, and to serve with, you know, a, a glass of white wine before dinner. You just cut it into squares for a cocktail party or you serve it in slices or it's great after the theater late at night with a good salad or for, you know, people are suddenly coming over to lunch. But again, super practical. I made this all the time during the pandemic because it was it was great for lunch. And then you could, it was great for lunch the next day too. And then the third day you could toast it and, and either add a little butter or drizzle it with a little olive oil. And, uh, and it's, it's incredibly practical and absolutely delicious. And you can, it's one of those recipes too, that you can just play around with. I mean, if you have different cheeses, add different cheeses, if you have different, um, charcuterie, add those, um, you know, it's kind herbs. of herbs. Yeah. Herbs, herbs spices. Mean, it's wonderful. It has a great structure um, also. So I think I'm, I'm a big believer that that if the structure of a cake is great, then you, then you really get to play with it. Well, I always find when a cake gets dry, you can moisten it with olive oil. Uh, mm -hmm. If it's appropriate, drizzle it with honey. Um, I also like good balsamic, really dark balsamic as a, as a flavoring. Mm -hmm. And um, often cake. we'll do that instead of sugar when I uh, make my yogurts mm -hmm. and uh, it does really well with fruit. Uh, when I was in Campania recently uh, and the bread was stale, I watched as my host just put it in some warm water for a few seconds and brought it back out. Mm, or maybe so a minute or two and it soaked yeah. it and it was just like soaked bread it was actually really good yeah, <laughs> you could do that with cake you can do it with wine too <laughs> yeah or or you could throw some wine on it um or some um spirits and soak it up i mean that is a great way to deal with stale cake is to um soak it in rum uh, <laughs> or your favorite spirit and, and i do encourage playing around at home and staying home afterward because what many people don't realize is that when you cook with rum and you soak your cake in rum it's the same or spirit it's the same as drinking it so yes, it's yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Definitely. do that at home in the comfort of your home and don't get in a car afterward. A lot of people don't realize that. No, I know. I know. It's, it's totally true. Um, but this if you make it so much fun, what's next for you? Obviously you're promoting the book right now, but what, what else are you working on and what's next? Alexandra? Oh, you know, that's a good question. I do have, I do have two more books I want to write that both involve France, probably three books actually. Uh, so uh, haven't aren't I'm not talking about those quite yet, but um, I need to need to write up some proposals, and uh, you know, and finishing this movie that takes place in Bordeaux, and um, and writing my column, and I've also started doing a lot of consulting, which I love on climate change and agriculture. I and saw I, that, which is so yeah. important. I know what you're passionate about it, and you see the results of it, particularly if you're working on this movie in Bordeaux, because it's so evident in the vineyards. Absolutely. And I spent some time in Mozambique this summer looking at uh, shade grown coffee and the reforestation of, a, of an entire mountain that was fascinating in, in Gorongosa National Park. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really fascinated. And, and like everybody, I, you know, I think we've got to, we've got to put our heads together and, and, uh, and help in any way we can. So that is, that's the other thing that I'm, I'm doing and, and feels it's something I am deeply passionate about. Well, I am passionate too. I'm very passionate about food waste. And, yep. uh, and insecurity in a, in a world where, there, where there's so much abundance and yet there's so much waste. Um, that's something I'm hoping to work on more in the future as I, as I dive into it and see it everywhere. Um, 
It's incredible. We have to be stewards of the earth we do. and we all have to learn how to um, hone our skills and cook. We have to support our restaurants, but we also are dealing with economics right now where it's time to get in the kitchen and, you know, brush up on your skills because mm-hmm. it is expensive to go out and you might as well eat better in and don't be lazy and eat good food because it better food for you is going to be better for you and your family. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, and, and if, and if you need to indulge, pick a cake. Exactly. Always, as I always like to say, take the trip, drink the sip and eat the cake and I'll add bake the cake. I'm a big believer in that. Don't hesitate. Just do it again. I'm so glad you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I hope Um, we've been talking to Alexander Crepanzano. You're having a fascinating last name. Is that what's the heritage of that? Oh, Italian, Crepanzano. Yeah. That's what I thought. I thought that I thought I would ask. I bet you kind of got a lot of jokes about a tube or thing, but it's a great name. (laughs) I I love it. I love it. And I do want to give a shout out. So the book is Gatto, the surprisingly simple, the surprising simplicity of French cakes. I do want to give a shout out to Cassandra Montori because this book has illustrations, not photos, which I was you know, you always get photos. I thought the illustrations were great. Um, I have a great, great admiration for illustrators as well as photographers. So kudos for you for going that route with this book. Yeah, thank you. You know, I wanted a timeless book and I know food photography can sometimes get old very quickly. And, you know, in writing a book that really Mm -hmm. is not about trends, but is very much about recipes that have lasted for years and will last for years. I wanted it to feel I wanted it to feel new in, you know, five years as well as now. Well, I think this is a timeless book. So thank you for writing it. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time today. So um, keep writing, keep filming and, and always like, I always say, stay insatiably curious. Thank you, Alexander, for joining me. Oh, thank you, Melanie. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. 